money is not the problem. That's easy to show because there are any number of people in the Bible who were rich. Abraham was very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold and in the number of people he had working with him and for him. Joseph wore the signet ring of Pharaoh and rode in a chariot with men in front of him shouting, make way, make way for Joseph. Moses was raised in the palaces of Egypt and had all the treasures of the Pharaohs at his fingertips. Boaz was a man of standing, we're told, who had servants and fields and extensive property. Solomon had no equal among all the kings of his day. He had uh, 12,000 chariot horses ready uh, for his army. He had uh, 25 tons of gold brought to him every single year in tribute from other kings around. Daniel enjoyed the food and the wine from the king's table and was lavished with gifts from Nebuchadnezzar. Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament is conspicuous for his wealth as the one who was able to provide a clean, fresh new tomb for the body of his Lord Jesus. Joanna was married to an official of the house of Herod Antipas and she is conspicuous for using her wealth to provide for Jesus and the disciples. Cornelius was a centurion with a large household and servant staff, one of the first Gentile converts. Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth who opened her home to house a church, most likely. And the most excellent Theophilus was the receiver and potentially the commissioner of two of the largest books in our New Testament. Money is not the problem. The love of money is a big problem. And the love of money is unlike other loves. Other loves need to be worked at, to be nurtured. You love your neighbours because you decide to love your neighbours. You get to know them. You get to know what they're like and what, what pleases them and how to help them. You love certain kinds of music because you spend time listening to those kinds of music. You love your hobbies because you've practised them and performed them time and time again. But the love of money is not a love that needs to be nurtured by us. The love of money grabs hold of us. We don't nurture it from within ourselves. The love of money reaches and takes hold of us. And the love of money, Paul tells us, is a root of all kinds of evil. Not least the evil of unbelief. And so Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Not because the rich man is rich. It's not because of his riches that it's hard for him to get through uh, into the kingdom. But it's because riches can so easily become the love of riches. Money can so easily become the love of money. Because we don't have to nurture the love of money. The love of money seeks to grab and take hold of us. Now how are we going to fight that threat to our faith. When we live in a society that so often defines itself by the possessions that it has, the things it owns, or the things that it can offer. How are we going to obey the 10th commandment? You shall not covet. How are we going to protect ourselves from that love of money, which is a root of all kinds of evil? Well, it might not surprise you to know that Christ is the key. 
That's where we're going this evening. We're going to see how Christ is the, the key to responding to this temptation of the love of money. And what I'm going to do this evening is in three parts. First, we're going to think about the, uh, the dangers of greed, the dangers of the love of money. Secondly, we're going to see how Jesus Christ answers those dangers. And then thirdly, I want to urge you to be deliberately generous. That's what I want you to go away from this evening with the aim to do. Be deliberately generous. Because deliberate generosity is both an act of obedience as well as a powerful antidote to this temptation to love money. So that's what we're going to do this evening and that's where we're going to end up. First, let's outline the dangers of this sin. Greed is slavery is my first point. Greed is slavery. We're finishing off this series in the Ten Commandments. The Tenth Commandment is, you shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet them. Now, last week, Joseph helped us to think about how coveting can be uh, any number of things that we might covet. But it would be fair to say that most often, when we're talking about coveting, we're talking about coveting some material possession. And you see that even in the commandment, the house, the uh, manservant or maidservant, the ox or the donkey, um, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Yes, there are other non-material possessions that belong to our neighbour, but most often the sin of covetousness is to covet the material possessions. It'd be easy to equate the sin of covetousness with the love of money, therefore. The love of money, or the love of things that money can buy, you might say. You see the the link between the two. And I'm going to call the love of money this evening greed. I'm going to talk about greed. And when I refer to greed, I'm meaning this love of money, I'm meaning this sin of covetousness. But I've chosen the word greed Precisely because it is quite a provocative term, wouldn't you agree? Do you count yourselves as greedy people? Surely not. Surely it's only a certain shape of person that is a greedy person. But no, greed can take many different forms. And I want to talk about how greed is the sin that we're fighting against this evening. And and I recognise that that is a a deliberately provocative term and and maybe it doesn't catch everything and all the nuances of what covetousness is. For example, not every covetous desire would be described as greed. You can imagine a poor man coveting the riches of a rich man. You wouldn't necessarily call that greed if if he's in poverty himself. But you'd still call it coveting. But when you've got a rich man coveting the riches of another rich man, surely that is greed. He's got the riches already for himself, and yet he wants more riches, just the riches that do not yet belong to him, that belong to another. Surely that is greed. When a rich man covets the things of another rich man. And what are we, generally, if not rich? Again, generally. I'm not speaking to every individual specific circumstance. But as a general rule, who are we here this evening? Compare ourselves to people throughout the history of the world. 
the, the 21st century surely has got to be the time when people around the world are richer than ever they have been. Compare yourselves not just to people of history, but to people around the world today. How many people live on less than a couple of dollars a day? How many people have to cram their whole families into one bed to sleep at night? How many people have to take turns to sleep in the bed at night? How many people have to have to have children just so that they can afford to feed themselves as a family? And compare that to the situation in the UK where many choose not to have children so that they can maximise their wealth. What are we if not rich people? Compare yourselves even to Loughborough. Which side of town are we on? Where are the expensive houses in Loughborough and where do we live as people? What are we if not rich? You might not feel rich, but certainly no greedy man ever has felt rich, has he? Surely that's the whole point of greed. And I've called it greed because I want us to help, to help us recognise the seriousness of this sin. Greed doesn't always feel serious. Coveting doesn't feel serious because if we measure it against what is common for the way people measure the seriousness of sin, it doesn't rank very highly. Often people rank the seriousness of sin based on how does it harm other people. And often you hear the question, how can it be wrong if it doesn't harm someone else? Well, what is greed? And what are your manifestations of greed? How do you see yourself being greedy or coveting? Most often it's probably that you're sat at home on your own browsing the internet. Perhaps buying clothes that you're never going to wear. Wishing that you had the garden or the furniture or the house of the person next door or just up the street. Perhaps it's just excessive spending on a particular hobby. That's not harming anyone, is it? That's that's benefit. That's a a benefit to the the economy, surely. Perhaps it's an over-enthusiastic commitment to checking your ISA, making sure it's filled up every year, or monitoring the growth of your pension funds. All these different ways that, that greed can show themselves in our hearts that most other people will never, ever see. And because most other people don't see them, because we're able to maintain a very respectable veneer towards others, we can assume that this sin surely is not very serious. It's a victimless crime. It's not a big thing for us to worry about. But my first point is that greed is slavery. Whoever sins is a slave to sin. Whoever covets the possessions of another man, whoever loves money, sins. And therefore is a slave to that sin. And so the victim of this sin is not other people who may or may not see you sinning. The victim of this sin is you. You damage yourself. You are the one who is harmed. And there's two broad ways, I think, that uh, greed harms us that I want to highlight. I'm sure you could think of more. But two important ones that I want to highlight for us this evening. First, greed makes us dependent on someone or something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. 
There's an either or in this verse. Either you put your hope in wealth or you put your hope in God, he's saying. You can't do both. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot depend upon both God and money. You depend upon one or the other. And Paul says, command them not to put their hope in wealth. What would it look like if you were someone who is putting your hope in wealth? Well, it might be that you, if somebody asked you, how do you know that tomorrow will work out okay? What is your security for the future? What makes you confident that your life will go the way you want it to or hope it to? And your answer for that, either verbally or or implicitly, might be something along the lines of, well, because the mortgage is paid, or because I've got a good job, or because the bank account is full. Similarly, somebody might ask you, what is what is the greatest fear that that burdens your heart? And maybe your fear is the fear of losing those things, the fear of losing the house, the fear of losing the job, the fear of having a fraudster empty your bank account. Are those your biggest fears? If so, then that might indicate that your hope really is in wealth rather than in God. Don't put your hope in wealth, command them, because the wealth is so uncertain. It's uncertain in two ways. It's uncertain because it fails. Money can be lost so easily. You will have read in the newspapers uh, a few months ago, uh, Elon Musk sent out a tweet. Just a few words, I can't remember what the tweet was. Something about one of these bitcoins. And in the same day, billions of his wealth was wiped off at his tally. Wealth is so uncertain. But it's not just that the multi-billionaires who experience the uncertainty of wealth. You will know people who have lost wealth through floods, through fire damage, through thieves, through inflation. And you find that the insurance that you've paid out on to, to try and protect that wealth doesn't pay out in the way that you hoped or wanted it to. Or it might pay out, but certainly it can't replace the things that you have lost. Wealth is so uncertain, it can so easily be lost. But I think wealth is uncertain as well, in contrast to the certainty of the Christian hope. It's uncertain because you never get to the hope that wealth promises. How much money is enough? We had this illustration a few weeks ago. Somebody asked Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? And his answer was, just a little bit more. That's when I know I will be safe, when I get just a little bit more. And of course, it never arrives. It never arrives. And it's funny to to think about his words and and, uh, give a wry smile or maybe tut and shake your head. But you know, Mr. Rockefeller's answer is not unique. It's not original. It came up in the scriptures first. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 tells us, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied. The hope that wealth promises is uncertain because you never achieve what is going to be promised. And Paul is clearly contrasting that to the certain hope of Christ. What is promised is already achieved and we're just waiting for it to materialize. And so those who are greedy become slaves to greed. Because to achieve what greed is promising you, you always need to be chasing a little bit more. And you're bound to the systems that that greed is is pushing you into. You become dependent upon wealth rather than upon God. Now, someone might object and say, look, I'm not dependent on my money. 
How can I possibly be dependent on my money when I've got so little of it, for starters? I'm even in debt. How can I be dependent upon money if I'm in debt? Uh, I've seen firsthand its failings. I I, I hold my possessions loosely. I I don't mind them uh, being dropped or lost. But there's another way that greed damages us, and that is through distraction. It distracts us from the one that we are meant to be serving. And so maybe it's not that your hope is in your wealth. Maybe you do not fear your wealth being lost because uh, you've got so little of it or because you've grown to recognize its uncertainty. But still you spend so much time wishing, doing the, the, the blue sky thinking, as it were. What if I had this? What if I had control of these things? What if I had that bigger house? What if I had those clothes? What if I had this piece of tech? What if my monthly income was just a little bit bigger? And what is it that motivates you to think about those things? Is it that you're putting your hope in them? Not always. Sometimes we can chase after those things and dream about those things for other reasons. Because we want to belong to a certain group of people. Because we want acceptance from our peers. It doesn't feel like you're depending on the thing. But really, if you trace it back to its root, it's, it's just the same issue at heart. You're saying, if only I had that, life would be better. Life would go smoother. And so again, greed shows itself as slavery. Because for some of those things that you've wished for, if only I had it, if only I was able to wear those clothes, if only I was able to live in that place, things would be better. Or for some of those things you've wished for, you've you've received them. Did it stop you being greedy? Did, Did it answer that call that you had? Well, no, you go on chasing after other things. When I was working at Land Rover, one of my colleagues once said, not a Christian, and in fact quite opposed to Christianity in many ways, but he said, do you know why they call them possessions? Because they have a tendency to possess you. They have a tendency to possess you. You you chase after them, and you can't stop yourself from chasing after them. The verse that I've just read from Ecclesiastes Whoever loves money never has money enough. The, the next verse is a curiously interesting verse. It says this, As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they except to feast his eyes on them? What is that verse saying? Um, I used to think it mean, when, when I read it too quickly, that when you have more things, you get more friends because they want more things. Uh, but really, that's not at all what the verse is saying. I've totally misunderstood it and not thought about what was going on. What the verse is saying is, as goods increase, so do the people who consume them. And what the verse is pointing out is that is opposite to the way you expect. You think in your mind that I need this material good to answer a certain need in my life. But the verse is saying, goods don't increase at the rate of people's needs. The opposite is true. If you make the goods... The people who need them will increase. And so it's not that you are chasing after possessions for yourself. It's that possessions are calling you to take hold of them. They draw themselves, uh, they draw you to themselves. Whenever we indulge our covetous nature to pine after, to long for material wealth, we do ourselves harm. Because we make ourselves dependent upon someone or something other than God, and we chase after a promise that can never deliver. Do not assume 
that covetousness is a victimless crime. You are the victim and it is damaging you and it is weakening your faith. Greed is slavery. But secondly, the gospel brings freedom. Greed is slavery, but the good news is that the gospel is almost the exact opposite. You see, greed says, here's this treasure and it's just out of reach. The gospel says, here's a greater treasure that is already yours. Greed says, just a little bit more will be enough for you. The gospel says, all that I have is yours already. And there is always more available to you. It is a, it is a well of life springing up, springing up from within you. Greed says, if you work a little bit harder, if you try harder, if you do more, you will be able to achieve these lofty heights I'm drawing you to. The gospel stoops down to the position that you're already in and says, here it is. It's a free gift. Don't work or earn for it. Just take it. Have. The greed breeds fear because it says all of what you've worked to to have may be lost in a moment, in the blink of an eye, overnight, gone when you wake up in the morning. The gospel brings peace. Because the treasure is eternally secure. Greed says you can't belong to our group unless you first have these qualities or these possessions. The gospel says I will give what you need to be part of us even while you are yet my enemy. Greed causes you to say I wish that what you had was mine. The gospel says, all of mine is given to you. Greed makes you think, if I share what I have, I will lose it. I will water it down. It will be less for me. The gospel says, if you share what you have, you multiply your riches. Greed and the gospel are exact opposites of one another. What does the Bible say is the purpose of our possessions? In Genesis chapter 2, you read that God has made many wonderful gifts for Adam and Eve to have and to use. Eden was full of gold, onyx, aromatic resin. There was uh, trees and food that were not only sustaining to life, but they were beautiful. They were pleasing to the eye. They were good for food. It was a beautiful world full of good possessions, things to delight in and to enjoy. And Adam and Eve were given these things and they were told to be stewards of them. Take them and use them. Use them not just for yourselves, but use them to bless the world that I have put you in. Use them to be fruitful and to multiply, to bless the world around you. Use them to bring glory to me by blessing my creation. So, The Bible's theology of material possessions is that they are gifts from God that are meant to prompt thanks and praise and are meant to be used as a blessing to other people around us, as we use them as his ambassadors, as his image bearers. Uh, And you see that a little bit in the verse that we've been looking at, 1 uh, 1 Timothy 6.17. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God is not a killjoy who just wants you to live on the bare minimum. 
He blesses us with many good things to enjoy. But greed distorts that intent. Greed takes the gift and rather than, rather the gift flowing from God down to us and then out into creation, greed takes the gift and terminates the process at us. I will have the gift and it will be for me and my own. And instead of the gift prompting praise that is then reflected back up to God, greed causes praise to go back down into the gift. People worship and serve created things rather than the creator. It's the heart turned inward on itself. But in the gospel, Christ steps into the world and it's as if Jesus says, what are you missing? What are you chasing after? What is your desire? What are you longing for from these possessions? Is it a sense of belonging, acceptance, love? Is it security and peace? Is it glory? And power? Is it rest? Is it knowledge? Is it victory? What is it that you are chasing after in these material possessions? Whatever it is, I give it to you. It's yours. Whatever treasure you are seeking, I offer to you. But not the, not the broken, destructive form of that treasure, which is the heart turned inward on itself, which is the gift that terminates at you but rather the the fullness of those treasures, the the purity of them, the the way that they were intended to be, that captures all of God's goodness and results in fruitfulness and satisfaction. You might wonder at this point, what is it that I'm preaching? Am I preaching some kind of prosperity gospel? Believe in Jesus and you will get treasure in your bank account. Am I preaching a more subtle danger, which is that danger of preaching a, a worldly heaven? That Jesus offers you a place in a, in a paradise where all the difficulties of your current life will be gone. And that's all we can say about this place. It's basically the same as what the world is chasing after. But you've got to ask Jesus for it first. No, I'm not preaching those two things. I'm not preaching the prosperity gospel. I'm not preaching a worldly heaven. Because these treasures that Christ offers us, he doesn't offer them as objects in and of themselves. We receive them, not as objects in their own right, but in Christ himself. And so we started this morning's service with the reading from Ephesians 1. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have it in Christ. We have belonging to a family by first being joined to him. We have rest, not the kind of uh, rest which is laziness and which just seeks to please ourselves, but rest which is being able to work without our work condemning us. And we have that rest, not as a, a thing separate, but as a thing in Christ. He has done the work for us. He has removed the condemnation. In him we have the blessing. In fact, he is the blessing. We want perhaps acceptance through using our treasures, but Jesus offers us not the, the celebrity, sort of vanity kind of acceptance, the being the most popular in the playground, everybody fawning over you. He offers the acceptance of being accepted by God, being a child of God. Not as someone or something separate to him, but by first being joined to him. Because we're joined to the Son of God, we are sons of God. He offers us power. 
by his spirit working in us, filling our lives. And so the gospel simply laughs in the face of our greed. As though to say, is that it? Is that what you were chasing after? Is your security really based on that pile of bricks? Is your identity really wrapped up in the logo that is stitched on your jacket? Is your glory really in that piece of electronics that you hide in your pocket for most of the day? Is the affirmation that you seek really found in driving that car around the town that so many people have an exact copy of? Is that really what you're chasing after? Don't you realize that you've got the Lord of the universe as your brother? Do you not realize that your closest friend is the one who put the stars in the sky? Do you not realize that you have his power surging through your life by his spirit? Do you not realize that you're accepted by the Father, the God of all? Do you not realize that you are sharing in the love of the perfect Trinitarian Godhead? Do you not realize what you have in Christ? Do you still chase after these things in possessions? Why do you chase them? Greed is slavery. The gospel is freedom. And so I want to finish by urging you, urge you to be generous. You see, in our right minds, we know these things to be true, and it's worth reminding ourselves of them, but really we know that what Christ offers is far more than what the world can ever offer. But the pull of wealth is powerful, and it is deceptive, and it is often subtle. And so we've got to think carefully, how are we going to counteract that pull of wealth, that love of money? Be deliberately generous. 1 Timothy 6.17 Command those who are rich in this present world not to put their hope in wealth. Verse 18 Command them to do good. To be rich in good deeds. And to be generous and willing to share. The way you counteract the temptation of sin to love money is by deliberately choosing to do the opposite. And it's interesting that Paul helpfully shows us that we're not choosing between two very different things here. Either I can uh, chase after wealth or I can love Jesus, as though they're two things on totally different spectrums. But he uses language which helps us to see that really doing the two things, you're doing the same thing but in a different way. You're laying up treasure for yourself. And it's a question of where is that treasure being laid up? Are you laying up treasure here on earth or are you laying up treasure in heaven? Are you laying up treasure in a place where it can so easily be lost or stolen or forgotten or taken from you? Or are you laying up your treasure which cannot be taken, which cannot be corrupted, which will only ever grow? Where are you laying up treasure? Generosity is not something we ought to first feel before we do it. Yes, God loves a cheerful giver. And there are those within the church who have been blessed with, perhaps you might call it, the gift of being generous. And who generosity seems to, to happen just without them thinking. They're just able to share abundantly and extravagantly with others. But for many of us, that, that won't be the case. And we will have to think carefully about how am I using these resources that God has blessed me with? How am I being a good steward of them? How am I fulfilling my role? How am I glorifying God with what he has blessed me with? 
And it will be a deliberate decision that says, I'm going to take this resource, I'm going to purposefully, deliberately use it in a generous way. And so that might not feel like generous giving at the point that it happens. It might not feel like cheerful generosity, I should say, at the point that it happens. At the point that you're giving, you might still be assessing in your mind, is, is, this, is this really what I should be doing? Shouldn't I be saving this for a rainy day? Because who knows what might happen? And you might still be having to teach yourself and remind yourself of gospel truth that by, by laying up treasure on earth, you're only setting yourself up for failure. But if I'm willing to be generous in this situation, yes, this is the right thing to do. Because by being generous, I'm laying up treasure in heaven, which cannot be lost, which cannot be stolen, which cannot fade away, which cannot diminish. We can plan to be generous. We can do it in a structured way, we can do it in a deliberate way, and we can do it in a thoughtful way. As we think about generosity, it's helpful to ask, what is generosity? That verse we read right at the beginning of the service, Paul is actually talking to the Corinthians about their generous gift and urging them and encouraging them to continue being generous in their financial donations. And he uses the example of Christ. And he says, just think of what Christ did. He left the riches of heaven and he became poor. That ought to be a model and an example for you in your generosity, Paul is saying. Don't just preserve your wealth and then give from the little bit of what's left over. Don't just allow the crumbs to fall off the table towards those who are lower down the ladder than you. Be willing to climb down the ladder with your resource in hand in order to bless others. Be willing to go from that place of riches down to the place of poverty in order that you might lift someone else, not up to your place of riches, but lift someone else up higher than yourself. Because that was the pattern of Christ. And Paul's saying, may the pattern of Christ be seen in the pattern of your generosity. Is our giving always even generous? Not every gift that we make is a generous gift. Some gifts we make out of duty. We have a duty, biblically, to care for our families. We have a duty, biblically, to pay our taxes. We have a duty, biblically, to support those who uh, are worthy of double honour, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy, who labour in ministry and teaching. Those gifts that we are making in those three areas are not really generosity. That's fulfilling your responsibility. And it's a good thing and we ought to do it. But when Paul calls us to be generous, he's calling us to go further than just what is our responsibility. He's calling us to be willing to make sacrifices for the benefit and the blessing of other people. Are we willing to step into poverty to help lift others to riches? Are we willing to allow our own lifestyles to be affected in any way in order to share with others who have less than us? Are we actually even generous or are we just fulfilling our duty? Generosity is not passing on your second-hand goods when you buy the new version. That's not generous, that's just recycling. Generosity would be saying, I wonder if I could live with this old item for another few years and I'll give the new one to someone else. That'd be generous. Generosity doesn't mean that we 
this view of generosity means that we don't despise the goodness of material possessions. God gives us everything for our enjoyment. Paul is not saying you just need to live on the bare minimum. This is not a poverty gospel of the one who has the least toys wins. God has given us things for our enjoyment, for you to enjoy. But also, when you're thinking about how to bless others, don't expect them to take the minimum just so that you can afford to pay for it in full. But look to be generous and and give them a better version than what you might have plumped for yourself. Because God gives us these good things. Gold, jewels, aromatic resin. Not because they're of purpose, but because they are pretty. They're beautiful. They're nice to have. They make life pleasing. Be generous. And as you do, allow your generosity to be an antidote to greed. Because what you're going to do is you're going to deliberately put yourselves in a position where again and again you're asking yourself, is this, is this the right thing to do? Is this sin? Is this a bit too much sacrifice for the sake of Jesus Christ and his church? Am I going too far here? And you're going to have to prompt yourself. You're going to have to remind yourself, how can I possibly be going too far? In fact, there is one way that you can be going too far. Don't ever allow your generosity to put you in debt to another. But that's seriously the only caveat I can see in Scripture on the limit of our generosity. The widow put in her last two coins. She didn't borrow a coin so that she could put three in, but she gave her last two, small though they were. And she wouldn't have known where her next meal was coming from, but she put them in. And what a great gift it was. Allow your generosity to be an antidote to greed. Allow your generosity to show you by practice and experience that you do not need the things that greed teaches you to be dependent on. They do not offer. They do not satisfy. They do not last. Be deliberately generous for the sake of Christ.